everybody it's max blumenthal i'm here with two really special guests who are going to cover an issue we've been talking about a lot here especially on rockfin on these streams on rockfin we've talked extensively over the past year and a half two years about the left's response to COVID-19, the declaration of a pandemic, and the many restrictions that have been imposed on the public across the world in lockstep fashion, from lockdowns to mandates, uh, school closures, and so on. And uh, one guest who I've had hosted in the past to discuss his book, The COVID Consensus, which I found to be the most one of the most compelling book-length critiques of the lockstep COVID response, uh, particularly the UK's COVID response, is historian Toby Green. Uh, Toby Green is returned today along with Thomas Fazi, a writer and journalist, to discuss the second edition of this book, which I think is an even more pointed critique of the lockstep COVID response and specifically the response of the left. So as I mentioned, Thomas Fazi is a writer and journalist. Toby Green is a historian, and he's a member of the steering committee of Collateral Global, which is an essential media outlet website that hosts symposiums and um, conducts uh, journalistic surveys of the impact of the pandemic response on the global poor, um, which is you know something I would have thought the left the internationalist left would have been more interested in, but unfortunately, um, they're an outlier. So welcome, Toby and Thomas. Good to see you both. Hi, um, we're also, we're also going to talk today about uh, Thomas's unheard debate on Ukraine, which is something we also cover here a lot. And I think the two issues, we'll talk about how the two issues connect, but let's... Uh, first talk about your book, um, The COVID, con COVID Consensus. The full title is The Global Assault on Democracy and the Poor, a Critique from the Left. Why did you think it was, it was necessary to do this book after already publishing one which really laid out the foundations of the pandemic and the failed response and how it devastated people from Western Europe to Sub-Saharan Africa? Well, thanks, Max. Yeah, I mean, the first, I suppose that's a question for me, because the first edition, yeah, yeah, came out. Uh, well, the first edition, the first thing, so the first edition went to press February 2021. So, you know, less than a year after the lockdowns began, before the rollout of vaccines beyond uh, the elderly and the vulnerable. Uh, so it went, it went to press at really quite an early stage in the entire pandemic process. One of the things we look at in the book is how, in fact, as became clear through 2021, the lockdowns and the vaccines were always connected. And in fact, if, we, right. if we'd been listening in 2020, that would have been clearer. Uh, but you know, that so that entire aspect of the book of, of, of the pandemic was not present in the first edition. And of course, you know, the consequences in terms of uh, the political consequences, the, the fundamental economic consequences, the questions of, of, for example, inflation and the impacts that's had on people around the world in rich and poor countries. You know, so many of these things weren't clear. So really, I would say now, looking back, the first edition was kind of a, an interruption of a process which unfolded over the course of three years. And, and, you know, of course, it couldn't make any headway given what was happening. 
uh, and now we've we've made you know Thomas joined me as my partner in thought crime as as I like to say and uh, we have the book the second edition is two and a half times as long as the first edition it really is almost a completely new book so I'm really so grateful to Thomas for, for joining me in, in that yeah Thomas I, I followed your work primarily on the politics of Western Europe and Italy um, you published some searing accounts of the green pass policy in Draghi's Italy uh, what, what was your contribution to this book? Why did you step in on this project? <clears throat> well, me and Toby met um, thanks to the first edition of the book. Um, I, I initially contacted Toby because uh, I was hoping to get the book translated in Italian. Um, this was maybe uh, mid-2021 or something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, just like you, Max, I was I was just blown away by by Toby's book and by you know his account of the effects of lockdowns. I think at the time it really was uh, completely um, you know unprecedented analysis of of lockdowns, and it really was such an eye opener um, for me. And so anyway, the Italian edition didn't uh, come about for for a number of reasons, but uh, on the upside, uh, a wonderful. Uh, um, friendship and a professional relationship was born um, thanks to that book in the sense that um, we, uh, we, me and Toby started talking um, and we realized we had so much in common. Um, uh, our perspective on, you know, what was happening was very similar insofar as we both um, come from the left, but we were both as profoundly estranged from the, from the mainstream uh, not just the mainstream left, in fact, the radical left as well, um, its approach to, to, to and reaction to the pandemic. And uh, that led us to write a first article together in Unheard called The Left's COVID Failure, um, which, which which had a, you know, which, which engendered really a, a, an amazing response. We got so many emails from people uh, thanking us for that article. People that you know would consider themselves be on the left uh who had been uh you know too too afraid to speak out because of the you know the, the, the sensorial uh, uh atmosphere that we uh, that we all experienced during the pandemic um and and but you know so many people wrote to us saying that you know they 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 identified with what we wrote in that article and in fact it you know it helped them realize that they weren't alone in mm -hmm. uh in in you know in and seeing things that way and uh i think that kind of spurred us i mean it, it sort of gave us a push you know it made us realize that maybe we were onto something you know that would you know there was, there was a need for a um a different uh critique uh, of the pandemic uh one that can you know one that was rooted in uh kind of a you know a, a traditional left-wing even socialist uh critique of uh capitalist dynamics i mean i think that's I think that's what gives this book uh, sort of something new, you know, an edge over other critiques of uh, of COVID, which have tended to come from a more kind of, you know, I'll say right wing for simplicity. But you know, we, we you know, even though we use the left in in the book, uh, I think we, we all realize that these terms have kind of you know uh, have have different meanings depending on the on the on the context. But I think most of the critiques have come from a so called you know a kind of right wing libertarian perspective. And so we wanted to uh, sort of bring a, a more traditional anti-neoliberal uh, critical mm. perspective um, to to the pandemic, which we feel is completely in you know in in uh, is completely co coherent with uh, you know the left's traditional kind of stance on 
issues of uh, uh, you know uh, uh, corporate power and you know abuse of civil liberties and uh, uh, the capture of state institutions by um, by private interests and so on and so forth. I mean, we we. We saw you know, so many continuous aspects of 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 these uh, uh, you know lines of traditional left critique in in our critique of the pandemic. In yeah, fact, I mean, was, was that so many people you know couldn't make that connection. You know, to I, mean, us I, think, I think it's all there in the in the book yeah. that that continuation. And I'd say sometimes it feels like Thomas and I were in a group think of two. In that you know we would draft different parts of the book, and Thomas would say what. Well, I would have wanted to say if I'd had the the energy and the time to research that part and vice versa, really. And it's quite complimentary in that, you know, Thomas is a, you know, really kind of, I would say, traditional, comes from a traditional European socialist framework and background. And I come from a really, you know, traditional internationalist perspective and background. And that I think those those perspectives are really important to bring together, actually, in, in what's happened. Absolutely. Well, the, 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 the critique of the pandemic, the critical critique, did generally come from what we associate with the right and the anti-statist traditions of the libertarian right. But there was a critique to be had about how actually the way that the pandemic was handled, how the COVID consensus developed so quickly in this lockstep fashion, and then the impact of it on the global poor actually eroded state foundations and eroded the state's ability to mitigate the impact of the market on the most vulnerable people. And I think that's what this book does. And so Toby, you've said that the left that you knew that you come from is no longer internationalist. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, that's what do you the mean only, by that? Yeah, I mean, that's the only conclusion that you can possibly draw from the fact that, you know, as you said, collateral global, you know, we've been documenting all around the world, you know, the most extraordinary abuses which have been taken place in the name of public health over the last yeah. years you know four and a half million school children in uganda alone out of education many put into early uh child marriage uh huge increases in domestic abuse of all kinds children in philippines and angola philippines they weren't out of the out of the house for 19 months what does that yeah. mean in a country with an authoritarian president such as duterte uh angola it was seven months uh and and, and also you know so and when I raised this at, a, at, a, at an event organized by a, an element of the, of the Socialist Worker Party in the UK in the, in the autumn, you know, I say, oh, you can't compare global poverty with the pandemic. Well, you know, I right. received an email in July 2021 from a human rights activist in India about the fact that at that time in India, he said literally millions of people from Tamil Nadu alone are starving by the roadside, migrant workers, because of uh, the lockdown restrictions. Now, this was yeah. a direct consequence, you know, and and the organized left in the West simply ha seems to have had absolutely no concern at all for what this has meant. The the collapse of the Africa rising narrative, as I wrote in an article in Unheard, you know, so that now Africa is, you know, back to the narrative of the early 2000s, you no know, debt ridden continent, you know, which has a huge impact on future public health. You know, all of these questions not present in the uh, in, in their main any kind of organized left-wing uh, framework that I've seen in, in the West, you know, maybe I've been missing it, but uh, so, you know, the only conclusion I can draw is that it is no longer internationalist. Yeah, let me go ahead, Thomas, if you wanted to jump in. No, I mean, I would just add, you know, in reference to what you were saying um, earlier, I mean, my, so my perspective, in fact, has uh, has always been 
I come from sort of what I would define, you, you know, the, the Europe, a European anti-EU and anti-Euro uh, left, uh, what some will have called or would call a sovereignist left, because I've always uh, understood, you know, the loss of sovereignty that the European Union entails um, um, for member states has been very problematic in first and foremost in terms of democracy and popular sovereignty, because, you know, you have this transfer of power to supranational anti-democratic organizations, uh, which are completely immune to um, to um, to kind of, uh, you know, popular challenges, popular influence. Um, uh, and yeah, they're completely insulated from any form of democratic process. And so I've always, in fact, spoken in favor of a need to re-empower uh, nation states vis-a-vis uh, -vis this kind of, you know, uh, decades-long process of erosion of national sovereignty that we've seen, especially in the European context, um, but more generally, I would say, at the global level, at the Western level. And um, uh, and so I, I brought that perspective to, um, you know, to, to my understanding of what was happening during the pandemic, which is why I, you know, I would take a different uh view from the traditional kind of anti-statist uh, critique coming from the coming from the right. Uh, I think there are two aspects uh, to that. And one is, of course, that, um, yes, I mean, the state has become to a large extent an enemy of the people today. But, you know, come from a, you know, from a, from a, an anti-neoliberal perspective, uh, we would see that as a result of the state having been captured by very powerful private interests. And so this is not a problem that has to do with the state, you know, per se, but it's rather the with the, state. the yeah. capture of state apparatuses uh, that has happened, you know, over the, you know, especially in, in, during the neoliberal era. Um, so that, that's one aspect. And so that doesn't mean turning one's back on the state. You know, that would be like, uh, you know, people turning their backs on, on, on the state after the totalitarian experiences of the 20th century. You know, what people realized was that, you know, the state had to be, uh, recaptured and redemocratized, not that we had to just, you know, throw away the state and embrace a kind of free market utopia. Um, <clears throat> so I think that that's one aspect. And, and the other aspect ties into what I was saying earlier, that in fact, you know, the problem here isn't, you know, it, it, it's also that so much power and sovereignty has in fact shifted from the national to the supranational um, level. And so uh, that's that's very problematic. I mean, it's problematic in the context of the EU, but as we've discovered in, over the course of the past three years, it's also incredibly problematic in, in terms of public health. Uh, so we've witnessed also a kind of supranationalization of public health. You know, and this is also quite a yeah. uh, years-long process. And I think you know the, the response to that should also be uh, to again kind of you know re-empower nation states vis-a-vis -vis these anti-democratic uh, you know uh, global and globalist um in institutions because you know history has proven that the nation state ha, you know is is the only vehicle through which democracy has actually uh, to some extent been realized and i think uh, so uh you know i think that's one of the important lessons to take away from from the pandemic you know i mean to realize that you know not to not to transform the state in an enemy per se but rather to see how this is a result of uh, a profound transformation in the nature of the state that has happened uh especially in the west but you know more in general globally over the past i would say especially 20 30 years yeah i think uh looking back i mean we can look at the countries that were attacked the states that were attacked at the dawn of the pandemic for not following who world health organization dictates and mm -hmm. marching orders for example tanzania nicaragua um sweden they these happen to be the states that had some of the best outcomes 
for their populations, particularly uh, the young, the poor, the working parts of their populations. I got to do a interview. I got to conduct an interview with Nicaragua's ver version of Ant Anthony Fauci, who actually is kind of the yeah, anti-Fauci, yeah. um, Sonia Castro. And she pointed out that lockdowns not only were not implemented because it would have destroyed not only the base of the Sandinista party, the urban poor and the rural campesino, but it would have um, violated UNICEF advice on children at school closures would, would have been immensely damaging to children. And they've had fine outcomes and they have not experienced the same death rates as Western industrial nations. Um, so I think that really bolsters, Thomas, your point of view about the importance of sovereignty. And let me just uh, read an excerpt from your book, The COVID Consensus, about how while each, while each nation should have had its own individualized response to meet the needs of their the unique needs of their populations. Instead, the lockstep response witnessed a uniform devastation of the poor and working class across national borders. Uh, supermarket and warehouse operatives in the West who were unable to do their jobs remotely and were forced to carry on working in cramped conditions and take risks regardless. Single parents in poor accommodations suddenly unable to cope with rents as debt spiraled. Women and children living in abusive situations compounded by the new layers of stress. Children with hyper-anxious parents who prevented them from socializing or exercising outdoors. Yeah, I see that a lot around here in DC. Mozamb I still see it. Mozambican parents whose children were starving, Chilean, Colombian, and Peruvian children whose futures were taken away from them as schooling ceased for a year. So, Toby, um, talk more about the, the impact across national borders on working populations of the lockdown policy and why, and I'd like both of you to weigh in on why you think the left, which proclaims to be most concerned about these populations was so supportive of lockdowns. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the impact, I think that the, the national question is really interesting. And actually, you know, coming back to the first point you made there, Max, about yeah. you know, comparing Nicaragua, Tanzania. Actually, I, 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 we didn't put this in the book, but I, I, I had spoken to an old friend who actually published some work of mine in the past, uh, a publisher in Tanzania, Walter Bagoya, about almost a year ago. And one of the things I hadn't realized about John Magafuli, who was the Tanzanian president who didn't implement the lockdowns, is that one of his, his principal concern prior to COVID-19 had been the Tanzanian healthcare system, rather like the Nicaraguan case, in fact. He had done, invested a lot of personal uh, capital, but also had really reformed the Tanzanian healthcare system and improved it. Yeah. And, and I think that this is actually a really important point that, you know, in fact, it was the countries which had, you know, in low and middle income countries which had done that, which, you know, first of all, had their own views and 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 because they had a they had they had developed their own policies around this and weren't simply respondent to supranational organizations i think that's really important and then in terms of you know the broader uh question you asked about you know what was the impact of this i mean i think you know and why were the lockdowns so harmful in in in, in low and middle income countries. I think, you know, this is to do with the economic framework of those countries. You know, in Africa, for example, the International Labour Organization estimates 85% of the population work in informal sector. Yeah. And I interviewed a Nigerian colleague for the book, Olutayo Adeshina, who said, uh, who's actually written the forward for the Nigerian edition, which we published fairly soon, who said that, you know, in Nigeria, everybody said, well, this is a policy which can work in our context for three days. 
Okay, so this was the World Health Organization's policy for every country where new cases were found, and it was a policy which could work in those contexts for three days before causing. And why does why is that? Because informal economies depend on movement fundamentally. They depend on people moving around, bringing goods to market, or you know, tr you know, bringing if they have access to transport, bringing things from further afield and. It depends on movement. If you stop movement, then you absolutely take a sledgehammer to that economy. Uh, and it, they also, uh, of course, in those contexts, people do not have savings to fall back on. Uh, there isn't. There was no effect. You know, there were various poverty relief schemes, but they generally were ineffective and often didn't reach the people they were supposed to be reaching. Uh, and so you basically take away take away the entire safety net. Uh, and you take and you take away and, and that's why you know the the the, the series of films I've, be, I've been working on with collateral global daily life in post-pandemic senegal show graphically that you know three years later those economies have not recovered that's the reality and that and, and you know there's a and there's a debt now a debt crisis in africa because of the pandemic response which right. means that there will not be the kind of in you know the kind of state-led action which can do the work that Magafuli have done in Tanzania will not be able to take place because of that debt framework, which will simply lead to a fire a, a further round of what some are calling structural adjustment 2.0, fire sale assets of uh, fire sale of assets at, 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 price, at low prices, and you know further impoverishment of, uh, of of you know the vast swathe of the world's population and that's just now why did the left support that i think i think a lot of it uh has to do with you know greater distance remoteness of uh many parts of uh the western left from arenas of production we talk about this in the book uh the, you know the, the reality of closed industrial plants uh supply chains being broken don't make sense when you do most of your work in a virtual environment uh and uh and i think uh, and then i think a lot of it you know did have to do with personally i would say a lot of it had to do with the, the existing polarization that had taken place over the previous 10 years in the political context that we all know about trump brexit johnson bolsonaro and the way in which that that ev ev evacuated any possibility of uh, critical engagement with what was actually happening and, and you know, the fundamental, you know, aims of left-wing politics, which is supposed to be a reduction of inequality, not the greatest increase of inequality in, in modern, ha modern history. Yeah. Thomas, do you have any other <clears throat> theories on why the left, for example, uh, I, I, I think I, there were some labor unions I saw involved in the anti-lockdown protests in Italy but not the main ones. No. Uh, no, well, yes. I mean, that's one of the great mysteries that we try to unpack in in, in the book, and we offer, you know, um, some explanations. I think, uh, in addition to what Toby uh, has said, there are um, other, you know, elements that one could look at to explain that response. Um, I think, well, one issue is that, you know, uh, and it's, uh, and you know, that it's, yeah, that's surprising in itself, but a lot of people on the left actually, I mean, I think the, um, the, I mean, authorities were very good at couching the COVID consensus in, you know, in progressive terms. And so right. it was all about, you know, it was all about public health. It was all about, you know, uh, uh, offering a collective response, you know, or anyone that criticized that response was criticized as being a callous, uh, individualist, uh, libertarian. I mean, this was, uh, so, so we see kind of authorities adopting 
kind of certain aspects of traditional left-wing uh, politics to justify uh, to justify these policies. But of course, that, that, that that's nothing new. I mean, authorities have always uh you know found ways to justify uh, their policies they authorities always tend to you know couch their policies in uh in well, even, i would say even progressive terms and so you know they, we all remember how you know the iraq war was a war for democracy you know and, yeah but you know but, but the left used to be able to see through that you know it used to be able to deconstruct uh the kind of you know the the the, the, the elite's narrative of uh, of certain policies you used to be able to see how that you know tends to be a cover for you know other aims other ends that used to be you know something the left you know, used to be able to do and instead what we saw during COVID was the left basically taking uh the official narrative at face value and you know right. uh, and i think that had part, partially has to do with the fact that you know very early on i think you know, <clears throat> as a result of the polarization that toby mentioned a lot of people on the left literally switched their brains off you know they literally stopped <laughs> yeah. about these issues and you mm -hmm. see that in you know you, even, you see that nowadays when you know we've had people on the left criticize our book basically uh trotting out you know uh, uh you know narratives that have been superseded even by pfizer itself you know yeah. i mean it's just that that's you know that they then the, the pro lockdown or even pro vaccine narrative is stuck in early to mid 2020. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's like a pfizer, it's like a pfizer press release from you know yeah march 2021 you know, yeah march 2020 yeah i mean that that's basically you know when they uh so so you know so i think that's one element you know and uh which is uh which is you know surprising um in itself and i think all you know points to a profound transformation you know almost an anthropological transformation that has happened in the left you know the fact that they were so easily fooled by these uh by these narratives even though i think it should be clear to everyone by now you know that these policies were definitely not in the collective interest you know that those that were fighting against them weren't moved by you know uh, a desire to kill others or a disdain for the lives of others and they weren't moved by a libertarian you know uh, individualistic impulse quite uh, quite the contrary so i think that's one aspect and another aspect is i think has to do with uh kind of you know theoretical uh failures in you know the left's analytical framework over the past um decades especially in relation to uh, neoliberalism and so um, you know, I think there, there is this understanding in the left that neoliberalism has entailed a, you know, a, a disappearing of the state, a withering away of the state in favor of the market. And it's, instead, I think that neoliberalism, as I was saying earlier, has entailed a, a, a capture of the state mm -hmm. by corporate right. interests. And that's very different. The state hasn't disappeared under neoliberalism. And I think, you know, we also saw that in the post 9-11 response. I and mean, we've seen states becoming increasingly authoritarian, increasingly, um, <clears throat> even interventionist it's just that they're intervening you know you know in favor of certain interests in society not in favor they're not even acting as a middle ground between labor and capital interests anymore they're simply a vehicle for the interests of big capital you know and that's so um but uh, but i think this flawed understanding of, of 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 the role of the state under neoliberalism by the left led them then to see this mm -hmm. kind of uh uh you know uh, rekindle of state interventionism under COVID as something intrinsically positive. So of course, if you think that the state has been withering away over the past decades, suddenly you see the state, you know, taking a cent taking central stage, managing, you know, centrally managing the economy, you know, going as far as shedding, you know, I mean, taking extreme measures in, you know, the reorganization of society, um, you know, they saw that as a positive kind of return of the state. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's as flawed an analysis as you can get, you know, because it simply points to, 
the you know, I mean, I think the policies that we saw are simply we, we didn't witness a return of the state. We we saw yeah. sort of this capture of state institutions brought to its extreme, um, with you know these kind of oh you know hyper authoritarian uh, measures that were aimed at further bolstering the uh, you know the dominant fractions of capital. Um, and uh, but the I, left I mean, I could do, if I could just come in, there's a really good example I can give of that. Actually, this at the conference I mentioned, organised by an offshoot of the Socialist Worker Party. You know, one of the criticisms in our panel, which we presented, which was an anti-lockdown panel, was, oh well, you know, this was the moment when capital stopped accumulating. And I think that that <laughs> was, uh, you know, an extraordinary statement. But it comes upon the view, it, the idea is, I guess, it stopped accumulating because the state took control somehow of, of of you know of these aspects of life but of course in fact as we all know it accumulated much more rapidly and of course in fact as we already knew before 20, 2020 you know the internet is a medium which favors monopolies so if you drive business online it's going to enhance those monopolies and th that, that was a predictable outcome in fact right i mean if, if it weren't for the it revolution the lockdowns would have never been possible because they would have never been profitable to the people who actually helped design and fund the pandemic lockdown simulations right. bill gates for example right um exactly. and 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 you know thomas you basically described the world economic forum's model of stakeholder capitalism or public private partnerships when you talk about corporate capture. And there are even elements in the Great Reset of socialism, for example, UBI, to accommodate a part of the population that has basically been cast aside, or I would say gazified by um, the uh, digital revolution. Uh, a whole part of the population has just been rendered superfluous. So the only way to keep them alive is to give them a few checks. That's where, where I see UBI coming in until they're eventually maybe until they eventually die off or disappear like the Rust Belt industrial workforce in the US that was killed off by the opioid crisis after being outsourced. Um, so it was all very deceptive and yet it appealed to a certain, uh, well, substantial sector of the left. And one of the other things that puzzled me, and you hit on this in your book, The COVID Consensus, is how the left is so disproportionately represented in the arts and yet there was so little sympathy for the impact of lockdowns on and and and, and vaccine passports as well um so many people i know who uh were young including women of childbearing age uh in order to participate in book festivals or to participate in arts festivals were told that they not only had to be fully vaccinated but boosted and these young women would tell me well we now know that this vaccine wasn't sufficiently tested on women of childbearing age. Every woman I know who's taken it, many of them have got their menstrual cycles radically changed. And the research is beginning to show that it does have an impact. So uh, it affected them too, but they were afraid to speak out because they'd lose their friends. Um, they would face uh, you know, contempt, be called anti-vaxxers and so on. And there was an interesting debate, Thomas, you pointed to between Van Morrison, one of the few artists, major international recording artists to speak out about the lockdowns and how it affected the left along with Eric Clapton and Billy Bragg, who's sort of, for those of you who don't know, he's sort of the troubadour of the British left, uh, who really uh, also shows how captured that part of the left is. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll show a little bit of this. Uh, this is Van Morrison conducting 
he conducted an interview in Mojo Magazine with Billy Bragg, and he wrote for for Billy Bragg to consider following our interview published in Mojo Magazine. He put forward a series of questions like, how did you feel about the COVID lockdowns and restrictions? Did you just comply and go with the government narrative? Did you question any of it? How did you feel about Rishi Sunak saying musicians should refrain and get another job? And I mean, I could go down the line. These are very pointed questions and, and, and Billy Bragg responds, well, uh, I thought it was a reasonable response on lockdowns. And then did you just go along with the government narrative and comply? Yes and yes. Um, and he basically says yes to all of these questions. It's pretty pathetic, but I think he it's emblematic of how the left responded. The left that was supposed to be critical of mainstream media followed uh, just, you know, loved the New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian. That's what they turned to. And they considered mm -hmm. all media, independent media to be anti-vax. The, the, the left that's supposed to be question, questioning expertise or think tank experts that are paid by corporations and industry turn to experts and the global consensus. And here you have it all in this exchange between Van Morrison and Billy Bragg. So how did the COVID consensus affect musicians? I guess I kind of like answered the question there, but if you want to add anything to it and, and why, why is this dimension so still overlooked i mean it's an extremely difficult question to answer that and i would come back to what thomas you just said and you know that somewhere the critical you know that that element of the left just stopped thinking you know i mean let's look at you know we did a podcast about a year ago with clifton duncan who you probably know max uh you know and uh you know and yeah. a, a successful actor in new york a successful african-american actor in new york whose career has been destroyed by uh you know vaccine passports and well, and then, of course, there's the, I mean, there's the history of vaccination and its relationship to racism. And it is quite incredible that yeah. the left thought it was fine to support these policies. The, the, the ACLU thought vaccine, there was no problem with vaccine passports, given the history of Tuskegee. But we could go further. You know, oral polio vaccines were subject to enormous trials in what was then colonial Belgian Congo, now Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi and Rwanda in the late 1950s. Millions of children, you know, were effectively guinea pigs uh, for these, you know, there's a huge relationship between colonialism and the history of modern medicine. And so for the, all, for the left to completely ignore all of that and think, and, and think there's no problem with discrimination when it comes to vaccines and vaccine passports, you know, is the most radical abdication of its intellectual responsibilities than I can imagine, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I think the most astonishing, you know, um, uh, exchange between was, I mean, Morrison and Bragg, I think, is question number 12, where Morrison asks, you think everyone should have just complied with the pandemic restrictions and enforcements, to which Bragg answers quite simply, yes. And I think that's, I mean, that that's really an astonishing response. And I think it has to be, I mean, I think it also, it also has, has to be understood in terms of what has become, I would say, uh, almost an ingrained um, kind of fear or disdain of the masses on behalf yeah. of the mainstream yeah. left. And I think this, I think, you know, we already had more than an inkling of this, you know, uh, during the, you know, so-called uh, 
um, you know, the kind of populist uprising in the second half of the 2010s that we witnessed across the West, you know, Brexit, um, uh, Trump, of course, and also, you know, several kind of even Europe had several kind of, uh, um, you know, so-called quote unquote populist governments uh, come come to power. Uh, you know, that was clearly a, you know, a, an expression of what was a mass discontent, you know, for uh, the, uh, the, the, the direction that Western societies were taking under neoliberalism. I mean, um, that, you know, I mean, my previous book, you know, was called Reclaiming the State, and it was an attempt to kind of, you know, frame that populist uprising in a different, you know, uh, in a different light. You know, I saw that as a demand for greater democracy, for, for you know, people to, wanting to have a greater say in the collective affairs of their countries. But that's not how most of the left saw those um th those movements those phenomena that were that were instead they were seen as you know uh nationalist intrinsically fascist intrinsically racist uh, phenomena um and so i think we've we've been witnessing this growing uh yes I, I would i would even call it a fear of the of the masses on behalf of the on behalf of the mainstream um left i mean we saw it with Brexit, we saw it with trump and i think that you know that all is also what increasingly led them to you know uh disdain democracy and especially popular democracy popular sovereignty in favor of experts technocrats you know who were seen as these figures that were capable of you know that had the right answers you know that the rabble you know uh, wasn't uh, wasn't capable of um, of answering i think in in, in bragg's response to morrison you know this idea that everyone just had to comply with what the experts were saying um i think you know it, it really transpires you know this complete disdain for the ability of the masses to make decisions for themselves and um and uh you know I, I find that astonishing i mean that's the opposite of what the left is supposed to represent the left is supposed to uh be about you know democrat democratizing society democratizing the economy uh about giving greater power to people and instead here we have a complete you know uh reversion of that you know here it's all about taking power away from the people and giving it away to experts because you know the people are assumed to be completely unable to make rational decisions and in fact you know if we look at the uh at the pandemic i mean a lot of the um a lot of the uh, skepticism you know with regard to lockdowns or vaccines it wasn't irrational at all you know a lot of the people you know a lot of the people that you know for example were very skeptical of vaccines uh you know had actually looked at the uh, uh what had come out of the trials had actually looked at the yeah. data uh, you know <laughs> to the extent there were any trials had, you know, very yeah. good reasons to be skeptical about you know about the vaccines and uh and also, you know, this, and again, we come back to this uh, notion of individualism versus, you know, uh, you know, uh, collectivism or collective response. Again, I think we have a complete inversion of reality. I mean, how can, you know, being in favor of locking people inside their homes, uh, uh, stopping children from having any form of social interaction for months, so how can that be seen as, you know, as something that goes in the direction of, a, you know, of a collective response, while those that were arguing for, you know, the need to preserve sociality for the need to preserve human contact for the need to preserve and, and who actually uh kept, took to the streets in the thousands in the tens of thousands uh how could that be described on the other hand as an individualist response i mean that was the only collective response in fact that we saw during the during the pandemic you know so uh what we witnessed has really been a complete uh i would say uh you know it, it really inversion of reality and of what the left used to uh, used to stand for. It's been quite astonishing. And it really speaks to the class character of what the left, the Western left is.
which is distinctly different from the left that I've encountered in Latin America, for example. Uh, the left is concerned with credentialism in the West because the left's base of power in the U.S. at least, and Europe is, is, the, is and particularly in the U.S., where it's lost its base among labor unions is the campus. So mm -hmm. naturally, people within the left, even the radical sectors of the left, would trust others with credentials over those who are rejecting a scientific techno fix like the COVID mRNA vaccine, uh, who come from the, the lumpen proletariat that waves American flags and supports Trump. Um, it really was disappointing, but having come out of that broad church of the left, well, not so broad, narrow church of the left, I completely got it and understood it. I guess I, you know, I even spent a few weeks deciding to be very cautious about this whole situation until I just, <laughs> I just started to question it myself. Um, another area of concern for the traditional left is the welfare of women. Wow. And this is an area you discuss in the book. Let me just read a excerpt brief excerpt from the COVID consensus by Toby Green and Thomas Fazi. One category of people counting for over half of the world's population that lost massively as a group were women. The gender dimensions of the COVID response are so vast that many books would be required to address it. And we won't be able to tackle it in this one as deeply as we would like to, but it's vital to acknowledge the immensity of this question nonetheless. Toby, uh, you know, address yeah. the immensity of this question in just a few minutes. I mean, it's a shame you're not talking to my colleague who I've worked a lot with here at King's, uh, Aleda Mendez-Borges, who's from Cape Verde. And that's um, she's done a lot of work on the gender dimension. And, and, and you yeah. know, it's quite staggering. You know, I mean, of course, you know, women are primary caregivers uh, around in the world. And, and uh, that this puts a huge, ex this, the lockdowns put a huge extra burden on care. That's the first point. Uh, also, women are disproportionately present in the informal economies, you know, in, in, especially in low income countries and middle income countries, formal employment is gendered, it is often the preserve of men. So the attack on the informal economy has a massive gendered impact. So I mean, just to give some examples, some of the interviews I, I did with uh, people, a, a colleague in Angola, you know, describe the impact of that, you know, that, uh, you know, in that situation, you know, suddenly, there's a massive increase, for example, in prostitution in the city where the, where this person lives in Bengala in, in southern, southern Angola. You know, so huge increases in abuses of all kinds in labour insecurity in Latin America. Uh, there was a report saying that you know uh, women's reproductive rights have receded 30 or 40 years because of lack of access to you know contraceptions, uh, sex education, and so on. I mean, you know, it's just a staggering assault on, yeah. on uh, and, and and regression is all that can be said. As you mentioned. Toby, Uganda had one of the longest lockdowns in yeah. the world with some of the longest periods of school closure. And even the New York Times reported that young women who lost their high school education have uh, are now being trafficked or uh, well, I, mean, uh, Max, I remember you, you sent me an article written by a, a, by a Ugandan pen on a re who described a visit to I think it was Eastern Uganda. Uh, and the impact of the of school of, of the school closures, you know, a, a whole generation of of teenage girls who, who now with children, you know, massive increases in abuse, and, and, and it's just quite staggering. Four and a half million school children in Uganda left education, and and that has enormous. 
And actually, I've heard the same from colleagues in Turkey, for example, in terms of the impact it's had on, you know, marriage uh, and, and lives and livelihoods of of, of, of of teenage, you know, teenage girls. It's and, and this is and of course, there are also economic reasons for that. You know, the collapse of of, of, of economic of, of the informal economy and, and also food security. That's a very important issue. So look, so in yeah. Angola, for example, People weren't allowed to go. They lost their harvests because they weren't allowed to go to the fields. Uh, and this is one. This is one of the starts of the inflation, which has subsequently been seen in food prices. Uh, so I spoke to a colleague in Ghana who described how, because they lost a harvest worth of of, of, of maize uh, to feed the chickens, that was already rising within you know six eight months of the original lockdown. So you know, all these factors are interconnected and lead to a, an assault on 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 the social and economic condition of women yeah no, I, mean, I think more in general i mean it really shows what a travesty the notion that you know we were doing this to um to protect the vulnerable really was i mean yeah in fact you know i mean the vulnerable uh groups in society were the ones that were hurt the most from these uh from these policies i mean children um working classes, especially in, you know, the logistical and other sectors that were kept on working right through lockdown, delivering packages to the middle class, you know, to the laptop classes that were in many cases, uh, you know, um, enjoying lockdowns and comfortable homes while, uh, of course, uh, low income people were stuck in tiny uh, to tiny apartments, uh, often in very difficult uh, family, family situations. Um, you know, they, so in a way it was, you know, what we witnessed again was literally the opposite of what uh, we were told uh, lockdowns were supposed to do. In fact, we saw you know the vulnerable, the most vulnerable in society, being used to shield um, uh, the most um, uh, the, the 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 better off in in society. And I think that's and that becomes you know I think you know especially clear when we look at the question of the most uh, vulnerable at risk group uh you know from covid which is which we know was known right from the start to be you know elderly people especially elderly people with pre-existing uh medical conditions and uh and who are you know uh, you know older people with pre-existing -pre medical conditions uh they tend to be uh you know the elderly living care homes and um and we know that an overwhelming majority of deaths especially in the first wave occurred in care homes and so you know a rational response to this you know would have been the kind of focused protection which wasn't invented by the great barrington declaration and in fact was one of the staples of all the pre-2020 pandemic plans that had been uh devised by governments which all you know placed an emphasis on you know minimal disruption to societies minimal minimal disruption to uh the economy and you know, focusing the resources on protecting those at risk. So you know, all you know, pretty much all you know, the consensus, the pre twenty twenty consensus on how to manage a pandemic was focused uh, protection. But suddenly, this became this you know became uh, you know uh, an outrageous thing to say. You know, and and those that you know started you know, started proposing it, uh, you know, early on in the pandemic, were in fact attacked as being. Uh, right-wing libertarian nutcases. In fact, all they were proposing was what was the con what was the consensus up until 2020, and, uh, right. and 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 the result is 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 before our eyes. The result is that you know 
perfectly healthy people that were not at risk from COVID uh, at all, especially children, uh, suffered immense, uh, you know, economic, uh, you know, physical and mental health damage, while those that we were supposed to protect, the elderly, the frail, were completely abandoned and, in fact, died in the tens of, of thousands. I mean, it's right. a, it's a complete disgrace, which uh, you know, people, you know. You know those responsible for should be held accountable uh for in the courts i think because it's uh it, it's been really astonishing well in new york state andrew cuomo was held accountable uh but for some me too allegations and not for the mass death of the elderly as he moved sick people into elderly care homes that's right. that's how accountability takes place in our culture um then we have the issue of freedom civil liberties this is something the left always traditionally espoused. It's one of the things that drew me into the left was opposition to mass surveillance, uh, just you know, belief in that part of the Constitution that enables me to do my work as well. And and it's so funny, you know, that we were speaking out about this dimension and getting called libertarian, uh, and the left, which was following mainstream media by the left those following mainstream media and now finally we're seeing all of these these files and these reports basically restating what we've been saying for over a year or two years here's associated press uh police seize on covid 19 tech to expand global surveillance so oh, thank you for acknowledging that sounds like a conspiracy that. theory yeah uh, <laughs> uh yeah i mean it's showing uh, the, the Israelis are, are using uh, all the, you know, track and trace technology in, in, in the intro to track uh, Palestinians in Jerusalem. I mean, mm. shocker that the Israelis would do that. Mm. Uh, what, he, what he didn't know, and they're talking about a Palestinian uh, in Jerusalem's old city, was that the feared internal security agency, the Shin Bet, was using mass surveillance technology mobilized for coronavirus contact tracing against Israeli residents and citizens for purposes entirely unrelated to COVID-19. Oh my God, there was a uh, mission creep. Everything we said came true. And then you have like the Telegraph has the Matt Hancock files. I mean, mm -hmm. it's all coming out now that it's all over. Um, yeah. You know, before you know it, uh, you know, in 2028, we'll have the Zelensky files. Maybe someone will conduct a uh, critical interview. Yeah, I mean, the them. problem with the Hancock files for me is that, you know, Hancock seems to me, you know, he's, a, he's an easy fall guy. Yeah. You know? Oh, it was Hancock's fault. He didn't follow the advice. You know, let's lay it at his door. He's out of government now, you know, so nobody has to carry the can, you know, and there's a much more systemic issue there. And, and as, you know, Thomas, your article today in Compact, is it kind of touching on the issues that Max has raised there is about how, you know, there's a broader framework of, of surveillance. And that's, and you know, the Snowden affair showed that that had been going on for a long time. And yet, you know, the, you know, the particularly the laptop class, the left, you know, that element of the mainstream left just went along with it, you know, downloaded the app, continued, continued to be, uh, you know, observed and monitored. And then suddenly along comes COVID-19 and suddenly, you're, it's, you know, you're becoming a, a good person. It's at, you're getting an ethical brownie point by downloading the app and being monitored, being traced, doing your part of your social duty. And I think that's a really important part of how that narrative was created, that suddenly yeah. the things that we were all doing became, you know, ethical bonuses, you know, and if you didn't do it, you were bad. 
you know, and that's how you know the surveillance state has been has been moralized in in the last three years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think again, it relates to uh, I think you know profound you know uh, theoretical confusion on the left. I mean, I think partly it relates to so you know the left has you know criticized uh for a long time the uh you know the in, you know the individualist tendencies promoted by neoliberalism uh you know, kind of the, you know post post 80s uh uh every man for himself uh kind of capitalism and and of course there's value in that criticism of the, of the kind of hyper individualism promoted by um by by late capitalism but i think it's absurd to promote individualism with individual freedom i mean clearly they're two very different things and instead instead it's as if the left at some point just superimposed the two and so when the state came in and started taking away people's freedoms uh they saw that as a positive reversal of uh, you know this you know pro-individualist you know trend you know finally we have you know they they, they literally saw that as uh you know the end of individualism and the return of of the collective and again you know it's uh it, it's astonishing i mean that you know and it, as you were saying max it completely uh forgets that the left has always a central tenet of the left has been expanding uh people's freedoms you know not just negative freedoms so freedom from oppression from inequality from you know bad pay uh right. from from insecurity you know uh in on, on different levels and also positive freedoms you know the freedom to be able to shape society to have a collective say in society so you know freedom has been a tenet of uh, of of left and even socialist politics for for so on and you know let's you know take feminist politics you know the whole notion of my body my choice uh that went all down a drain with vaccines all of a sudden um mm. and so again you know we see this complete reversal of what you know historically the left has uh, has stood for and uh and again uh yes you're right toby i think you know this this isn't just something that happened uh overnight you know i mean there's been there's a long history of um kind of pandemic preparedness thinking in elite circles where you know it was openly discussed uh, and it has been for more than a decade how you know a, a health crisis could provide the opportunity for rolling back uh, civil liberties for rolling back freedoms. I mean, you know, the imposition of a state of emergency as a way of uh, controlling unrest, controlling societies. And let's not forget that, you know, all of this happens on the heel of that, you know, uh, you know, late 2010s populist uprising that I yeah. just mentioned. You know, I mean, that was a period of great global unrest. We saw levels of industrial unrest, of, uh, you know, anti-government demonstrations, riots, strikes, they all went through the roof, you know, in, in a period following the 2008 crisis. And then, you know, again, they, they pick up again in the second half of the 2010s um, with the various phenomena that I mentioned earlier. And so, uh, and so, you know, th there was open discussion in elite circles, you know, of, of, of the way of, of how, you know, a pandemic might have provided a cover for implementing certain, um, certain measures. Now that this doesn't necessarily mean uh that it was all planned or that they had you know complete foreknowledge of what happened it what we do know is that you know they've been planning for how to respond to a pandemic for a very long time and in fact a lot of the uh responses that were developed you know went along the lines of greater uh government control of greater top-down control of restrictions of uh, of civil liberties and um 
you know, and 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 that's a fact. And then if you know, and so I think that's something that has to be uh, acknowledged. I mean, we've seen the, you know, the, the 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 growth of a very very powerful, you know, what we could call biosecurity complex in the years, and in fact, I would say at least over the, in the decade preceding the uh, the COVID pandemic. You know, and this, you know, it, it comprises, you know, some of the most powerful fractions of big capital, of course, you know, pharma the IT industry, but also, I would say, the national security apparatuses, the global health um, apparatus, the WHO, but also the various national uh, public health agencies. I mean, you, you do see the emergent. I mean, you know, there was already a very powerful, uh, you know, block in, in place at the time the pandemic broke out. And so, you know, even without, I mean, it, doesn't, it didn't have to be planned. I mean, this, you know, even if this had, you know, fallen out of the sky, you know, they were ready to implement that kind of response. Yep. They were in a position to implement that kind of response, which is, which is what, um, which is what they did. And so, you know, this isn't. And so, I think it's important to contextualize, you know, what's happened in in in, in the wider history of uh, uh, the rise of this biosecurity. Uh, and, and this is also a very important point. You know, people say, why did, uh, you know, why did the pre-pandemic plans? Why were they thrown out of the window? Well, it's clear that the reason that they were thrown out of the window was that it was part of a longer political process. And because it was part of a longer political process, that political process, which had been building for 20 or 30 years, as Thomas says, and which had been crystallized around all of these wargaming of different scenarios, you know, that took precedence over any plans which had been made before. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the point, I think, that is so rarely acknowledged maybe because it's seen as conspiratorial to the point that Alexander McKay, a uh, very uh, outspoken British Marxist made on in one of our interviews here at Rockfin is that this pandemic response was also a response to the rise of populism. CJ Hopkins and from who lives in Berlin has also made this point extensively and Thomas you made that point as well that the, the populist threat was put back in the box for some time. And of course we see, we see it returning uh, with a vengeance in, in, in many ways because of the, the draconian pandemic response and the, the rage. And of course it's being channeled by the right. The, the Democrats here in the US are just kind of weathering the storm as they managed to do during the last midterm elections. But let me uh, play a few minutes of a really important documentary that Collateral Global, the group where Toby serves as a member of the steering committee, produced on the lockdowns and the general pandemic response in Senegal, um, which was so devastating to the rural population, to those who make a living doing fishing, people who live in the villages. And it's such a rare look at what I think the majority of the world's population experienced from India to Peru to West Africa to South Africa, where these policies meted out by the or ordered by the World Health Organization, whose second or third largest donor is Bill Gates, were followed without any critical thought. So I'll I'm going to be uh, reading the subtitles because this interview is going to go out on our Pacifica radio show. Uh, this is from COVID-19 Fear and Social Breakdown by Collateral Global. 
There was virtually a universal lockdown, and although there was a bit of help here and there, this couldn't rebuild this confidence among people. This is a, a fisherman from Senegal speaking. So that a person could deal with their needs to move from one place to another. Everyone was stigmatized. Everyone had the finger pointed at them. Everyone was scared of everyone else. All this meant that social confidence having disappeared, there were no ways to escape. It was chaos. The economy suffered an enormous blow because when we speak of the economy, we're talking of coming and going. Moving around, the circulation of goods and people, when there's no circulation, when the goods don't arrive and the population can't go and get them, this was a complete stop. No one knew where to put their head, so the final recourse was for those families who had members in the migrant diaspora. These people were also victims in the same way as the people here and couldn't send the minimum necessary for the life of their family. So this was a breakdown, a real hellish circle into which everyone was enclosed. The context of this reality became clear following the release of a December 23 report on corruption by ministers in the Senegal's government who appropriated COVID funds for themselves. This led to a complete rupture, a lack of confidence towards the state, a great anger. Protests didn't take long to appear after the report was released. Let's look at the reaction of this young man, Boubacar Sané. He said, COVID became a phenomenon, something which young people had no confidence in because there was a lot of bad people involved, referring to the government ministers. So we had a report which produced a summary of all this, and the summary was catastrophic, referring to the corruption. It was unbelievably catastrophic. There was an embezzlement of funds. They announced deaths from COVID with no evidence. There were people who were dead, they announced. It was not the virus which killed them. They overcharged state funds for medicine, vaccination with expired doses, all orchestrated by the Minister of Health. And that's what it's meant for young people truly to be scared to go get vaccinated because they sensed all that. They had other preoccupations. They needed to look after their families, to look after their daily needs. And all the time the government locked down people in curfew every day from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. It was really, truly a catastrophe. People don't have the same working hours. Everyone knows that. Those who work by day, who work at night, for those who worked at night, it was really very difficult to cope, to deal with daily needs. How on earth to deal with that? People were obliged to go out anyway. But the uniformed forces of order who were out there to follow and defend the instructions of the minister. And then if someone died during this period, it was impossible to bury them. According to our Islamic religion, it was a catastrophe. We all knew COVID was real. Everyone knew that. But we had no option but to follow the instructions, but to follow them in our own way. That was how it was. So this is really a, 
so well, I, I actually didn't know about the protests in Senegal, but what he's talking about is that the ministers would actually inflate the death count in order to receive more COVID aid and then they would pocket it all and the population found out about it and went out in the streets. The same thing was happening here in the United States. Right. I mean, this is a global phenomenon. That's the whole thing. You know, we all know that basically there was a massive money printing exercise and it led to massive corruption everywhere. You know, it's the same case in the US, it's the same case in the UK, it's the same case as we see in Senegal. and and because this was an entirely new suite of pandemic policies, uh, which had, had literally not been planned for by national governments, even if transnational groups were wargaming it, as Thomas has described, you know, and and, and then as um, the fundamental point, what we saw there, I think, is the complete breakdown of trust in the state uh, yeah. and the impact that that had in uh, the vaccination program as well. Uh, and, and, it, and and a complete breakdown of trust in public in public health in Senegal. That's right. And of course, and, and of course, that's something we've seen around the world as well. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> what so as I was, I mean, so I think you see elements of continuity with you know, uh, uh, I would say, you know, the way in which Western elites have been trying to govern an increasingly un, you know restless society for a very long time. And I think we can go as far back as you know, the, 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 the rise of the post 9-11 security state. And so the use of states of emergency to control uh, the population, to sweep aside democracy, to crack, to crack down on protesters, it's not new. Um, but at the same time, it, COVID also represents a kind of quantum leap in this uh, kind of authoritarian way of managing societies. First and foremost, because it's the first time that we see an imposition of a global state of emergency. I mean, I think this points to just how powerful this power block that we were talking about earlier has become. Never yeah. before had we seen the imposition of a global state of emergency where, you know, what, what, there's nothing surprising about the fact that uh, African countries, when African governments went away, went along with these policies. I mean, we saw the pressure that ad rich, advanced countries like Sweden were placed under for daring to uh, go against the you know the COVID consensus, the lockdown consensus, we can only imagine the pressure that was uh, that the African countries were under, that you know poorer countries were were under. So that there's one aspect of it. I mean, so clearly we saw you know that there was a massive global global pressure uh, coming from you know the the the. the um, you know the the, the the global power elite uh through the who but not just through the who through uh western uh corporate media uh the, you know through the major uh the dominant western governments and, and 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 public health institutions and so on on countries to uh to pursue um these policies and uh, at the same time we saw you know complete harmonization of the narrative across countries that's also something we'd never seen before uh you know this, almost, almost the same narrative almost down to the smallest detail and not just the same narrative also the same protocol you know the misattribution of hospital covid hospitalizations and deaths the adoption of, of protocols that we now know do have been you know very very deadly the, the 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 refusal to even take into consideration early therapies the use of ventilators in advanced countries i mean so a complete harmonization of policies across the board i mean this is completely completely um unprecedented and then of course you know i mean a lot of governments had their own reasons for going along with these policies as toby was saying i mean you know for for for, for local i mean you, you know the, the, the the possibility to resort to a state of emergency 
will almost always encounter the favor of uh, of local elites. And in fact, you know, we've been concentrating a lot on, uh, you know, kind of the authoritarian trend uh, in Western countries. But, you know, in, in many ways, it's been even worse in a lot of poorer countries. I mean, we've seen governments uh, using uh, anti-demonstration, you know, COVID anti-demonstration laws to crack down, to violently crack down on protests. I mean, people have been, uh, you know, uh, killed by security forces in a number of countries in South America, in South Africa, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people detained uh, under, you know, COVID uh, uh, public health measures. I mean, more, more than 100,000 people detained in, um, in, 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 in the Philippines. Uh, so, I mean, in, in many ways, you know, we I mean, this, this authoritarian turn has been even worse in uh, in uh, in poorer countries, but it's been it's been a global phenomenon that you know the COVID consensus has aided and abetted, and in a number of cases uh, enforced. Absolutely, and you write in your the final section of your book that the politics of crisis have become the defining feature of Western liberal democracies. We've flowed sort of seamlessly from the COVID pandemic emergency where entire countries were placed under emergency law without any vote in parliament or Congress to the Ukraine proxy war, uh, which has for Americans necessitated the transfer of close to $100 billion of taxpayer money to one of the most corrupt countries on the planet in Ukraine. Um, so why, why, why do you think this is necessary that the media and the political class is so on board with the politics of constant emergency in Western liberal democracies? Are there economic factors? How is capital driving this, this increasing tendency towards constant panic and emergency? And I guess you would say endless war. Well, I would say on the one hand, you have an increased, uh, you know, an increasingly, uh, unequal oligarchic economy where you know uh, more and more wealth and more and more power is concentrated in fewer and fewer hands this is you know as a result of uh you know three decades of uh, of of neoliberalism i mean this you know we've yeah this has allowed you know private capital to acquire a power that it's never had before in uh in 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 history you know and of course there's, uh, and this in turn translates into the need for increasing authoritarian policies to, uh, uh, to, 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 to respond to, you know, people's natural reaction to uh, the, you know, growing impoverishment and growing inequality that we witness in our, in our societies. And so the notion that this was also a way to respond to growing restlessness, uh, you know, especially post 2008, I think there's a lot of uh, validity in that, you know, so on the one hand, you have this uh, uh, an economic system that is, is is not able to produce any form of material uh, consensus on the one hand that has to increasingly rely on authoritarian measures uh, just to, you know, just for elites to maintain their power. And on the other hand, you also, um, um, you also have the fact that, you know, elites have no, uh, you know, that there, there's no, um, uh, you know, there's no, I, I would say, you know, a secular theology, you know, that, that that elites can draw from to uh, to 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 offer the masses a positive 
uh, vision of the future. I mean, there's yeah. no, you know, you know what I mean? All, all they have to offer is, you know, what all they had to offer was mindless consumerism and individualism. And now they've also done away with that, you know? And so, uh, you know, what's left, you know, I mean, all they have left to really control societies is fear. I think this has been, you know, uh, again, a, a, a decade, a decades long process, but I, mean, I think now it's become institutionalized. I mean, I think now, uh, I would say that, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, democracies have been, uh, really hollowed out to such an extent that, I mean, I don't know if I, if I would even call Western societies, um, democracies anymore. I mean, it's really become uh, a sham in that respect. I think COVID was also revealing insofar as it showed just how easily, uh, all the rules and the checks and balances and the laws and the constitutions and the separation of powers, all the things we put in place uh you know in our so-called uh uh you know rule of law uh, democratic societies can be swept away you know overnight uh, i mean they already were an empty shell that's the fundamental point it already yeah so away. i think it was a, it wasn't so much a revolution it was yeah you know, it was a revelation you know, it really yeah. revealed what the actual nature of uh, our, our, of our, our of our societies of our uh, political economic regimes have have become. I mean, I think, you know, we shouldn't even call them democracies anymore. I mean, at best, uh, oligarchies or plutocracies. Uh, some have called them cosmocracies. So, you know, I mean, relating to the rise of this new cosmocratic class, a kind of a, a, cl a capitalist class that has global power, uh, immense global power for, you know, on a level that it's never had um, before. Um, and so, you know, I think... So, I mean, I, mean, I, I just... You know, what what's next you know i mean for especially for western uh you know quote unquote. what i just add to that you know i think there's an economic explanation as well which perhaps is important here is you know that we've seen as we said you know a massive transfer of wealth massive accumulation of capital in fact among the world's billionaires and in wall street uh you know huge increases in stocks and you know capital needs wants to invest itself that's what capital does you know capital wants a new a new field of investment you know, and I think that that is an important element. You know, we know there was a massive increase in investment in the in the, in the defence sector, defence sector, uh, offence sector in, um, in 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 the last year. And you know, and then that and that's a, a you know a straightforward economic explanation, which you know is hard to argue with, really, when you know how capital operates and the massive accumulation of capital which had taken place. Yeah, and I think you know, I mean, the birth of a of a of a of a complex creates creates a demand, and and again. Um, I mean, I think this was quite obvious on the left in relation to the military industrial complex. You know, when you have a very powerful mm -hmm. complex whose survival and whose growth depends on war, uh, you know, that creates a demand uh, for war. And it's not, you know, and, and the left understood that that also entailed uh, these, you know, these, these very powerful sectors in society pushing for uh, uh, pushing for constant war for perennial I, I think also you know economically you know there's the history of you know the great depression in the 30s you know orthodox economic thinking you know saw the second world war as the way in which that was brought to an end through you know the, the, the spending and investment which went with war and you know with the covid policies leading to what was said to be you know yes the greatest economic crisis for such a long time you know again this is a logical conclusion for uh so in fact you know the covid consensus can be seen as what as a, as a kind of prelude if you like to you know to the main course absolutely and and in fact when he was able to speak before he had been silenced by the western security state julian assange back in 2012 said that the 
two decades long war in Afghanistan, which was being surged at, at that time, was just uh, was primarily an effort to wash money through a foreign country back into the hands of the contractors uh, who really comprised the bulk of what we call the military industrial complex here in Washington, D.C. Those contractors supply such a disproportionate amount of jobs to the middle and upper middle and upper class here in Washington. They are, they've helped drive the gentrification of this city, which is the most gentrified city in America. I saw it happen uh, after Afghanistan and Iraq were launched. The city just instantly transformed. And so we have that happening again with Ukraine. And we also saw that with this massive transfer of wealth into big tech uh, and, the, and the pharmaceutical industry through COVID. So it's not just endless fear and panic. It's also endless looting, endless white collar corporate looting mm -hmm. of our pockets and our treasuries and our tax dollars. And uh, Thomas, I kind of wanted to close with a portion of your opening statement at the recent unheard debate you conducted or you participated in on the, I guess it was the nay side that this war was some just great war, the Ukraine proxy war, uh, because I think it ties together to this the discussion really nicely in how you frame the words versus the actions of those who are cheerleading for this war and actually planning it. It's very similar to those who uh, conceived the pandemic response and said that they were in favor of public health and their opponents were selfish people who were going to get everyone killed when the ultimate effect was that they presided over uh, mass social destruction. Uh, you're debating alongside Peter Hitchens, the British conservative writer who has been very critical of Western policy in Ukraine and whose brother, Christopher, if he were alive, would probably love Zelensky and be hugely supportive of Ukraine. Um, and you're debating against Konstantin Kissin, who is a sort of anti-woke podcaster, part of the anti-woke podcaster class, uh, who's a Russian emigre whose family made a lot of money under Yeltsin and is deeply, says he's deeply ashamed of Putin. And he's debating alongside Ed Lucas, who is a ferociously anti-Russian pundit uh, slash Kremlinologist. And let me just uh, turn to your statement. <clears throat> Without volume. Ukraine is continuing the war. designated or described as pro-Ukraine, while those that are in favor of de-escalation and a diplomatic solution to conflict are described as enemies of Ukraine and pro-Putin. I reject this simplistic Hollywood-esque narrative because it would mean believing that the U.S. and NATO only have the best interests of Ukraine and the Ukrainians at heart, that they're only there to defend freedom and democracy against Russian authoritarianism. Uh, it would mean believing that uh, the U.S. has been fanning the flames of war and meddling in Ukrainian affairs for more than a decade, including contributing to the violent overthrow of the country's democratically elected president in 2014, which plunged the country into an eight-year-long bloody civil war only because it had the best interests of Ukraine at heart. It would mean believing that the U.S. and NATO subsequently sabotaged every attempt to reach a peace agreement to that civil war, as they themselves have, have admitted, only because they had the best interests, the best long-term interests of Ukraine at heart. It would mean that they stoked anti-Russian nationalism in Ukraine and supported extremist neo-Nazi groups, 
and, and, and pulled weapons in and were pulling weapons in well before 2022 because they had the best interest of Ukraine at heart. It would mean that over the past year, they have continued to sabotage any attempt by third countries to broker a peace deal, um, for example, Turkey, Israel, uh, and have instead pushed for continuous escalation because they had the best interest of Ukraine at heart. And that today they say that the war must go on for as long as it takes, possibly years, as Biden said, only because they have the best interest of Ukraine at heart. And while I don't believe that for a second, um, I think it's complete hogwash. I think they don't give a damn about Ukraine and the Ukrainians. I think they've been using Ukraine as pawns in their geopolitical schemes before the, the conflict, and they're using them now as cannon fodder in their proxy war against Russia. Just like well, and that's something that Samantha Power recently said in a CNN town hall, which was obviously convened because of rising nervousness among the administration about public fatigue and anger about the proxy war. She said, well, we need Ukraine so that this just isn't a conflict between the U.S. and Russia and Ukraine will do the fighting. So essentially we're fighting to the last Ukrainian. But that was such a powerful statement, Thomas, because you are contrasting the actions of the West vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine and Russia with their stated intention, which is always humanitarian, altruistic, and about promoting democracy. Um, how, what did you make of the debate and the, of the overall debate over Ukraine? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that we were allowed to have a debate because, you know, yeah, it's so rare. Uh, that's something that doesn't happen very often nowadays. We don't see these kinds of debates that we on the mainstream media. Uh, there is no real public debate about Ukraine. Once again, we are witnessing the imposition of a single narrative. You know, we could write you know, a new book called The Ukraine Consensus. You know, we would, yeah. uh, we would see exactly the same logic, the same paradigm being applied, the imposition across the board of a single good versus evil uh, narrative, the marginalization and exclusion of any uh, critical voices. In fact, the criminalization of anyone that dares to criticize uh, the war, we will see the same, uh, what we were talking about earlier, you know, the same powerful private interests playing a pivotal role in driving uh, the policy because they, have, they clearly have to benefit from it. Um, and again, we would see a complete travesty of reality. We would see, you know, what, what, what we're seeing is exactly as you, as you mentioned, you know, just as during COVID, those that you know, presided over this massive societal uh, devastation were couching their actions in progressive terms and in turn humanitarian terms, we see the exact same thing happening over uh, over Ukraine. It's absurd. I mean, the, you know, what has one year of war brought Ukraine except, you know, massive devastation, massive uh, loss of life, uh, you know, and, and even beyond Ukraine. I mean, we know what the fallout from this conflict has been for, you know, millions of Western Europeans that have fallen into poverty as a result of the energy crisis uh, uh, across the developing world. We've seen, you know, again, uh, people falling into famine as a result of rising uh, energy and food prices. So, I mean, the global impact has been devastating. I mean, no one uh hardly anyone is benefiting from this war i think clearly ukraine isn't benefiting from uh from this war uh we know who's benefiting i mean we know that the u.s military industrial complex is definitely benefiting from this war uh just as the you know uh, the, the the biomedical biosecurity complex benefited from the COVID response yep. uh and more in general we see that the kind of u.s uh imperialist uh 
uh, hegemonic aims are benefiting from it. I mean, they've uh, they've uh, they, they they've managed to bring Europe back under their heel once again. I mean, Europe has been completely uh, you know brought back under the, 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 the um, under America's. Uh, control. It's, it's been brought back, back under, you know, American economic uh, dependence from American gas, for example. And so, and at the same time, it's allowing the U.S. to uh, to fight a war to weaken Russia, ideally maybe uh, provoke regime change in Russia with, uh, you know, minimal um, minimal uh, uh, loss to uh, to to itself. And in fact, you know, uh, mostly mostly benefits and. Uh, in this sense, I really think that they are, you know, using uh, Ukraine as uh, as the terrain for, uh, you know, for, for clearly, you know, for what is clearly a, a proxy war uh, against, uh, you know, an attempt by uh, Russia and other countries, China in the first place, to, uh, uh, you know, uh, push through a reorganization of the world order. Uh, I think that's what the U.S. is uh, is the U.S. establishment is is fighting against, and I think that's ultimately what the Ukraine war is uh, is about. It's about attempting to uh, stop any any attempt at a uh, at the emergence of a new multipolar, more cooperative uh, order. And uh, you know what scares me is that I think there are sectors of the U.S. establishment that will stop at nothing to prevent yeah. that from uh, from happening. Um, yeah, and, what, and what's quite incredible from a uh, perspective, you know, somebody who was, if you like, politically raised during the year of the Iraq war, went on the huge protests or, you know, the, the anti, what the anti-war left, you know, it's quite extraordinary that, you know, it's become so marginalized within mainstream left that when Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn in the UK says, you know, we, we shouldn't be sending more arms to, 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 to Ukraine, he's completely marginalized within the, the, the Labour Party. Uh, and you know, it, it's it's also incredible because you know the the left, which was one of the you know was the most opposed to the Iraq War, saw it as an act of imperialism, and that was fought on the grounds of bringing freedom, bringing democracy to the Middle East. You know, I mean the red, and and so what has changed twenty years later, where those mainstream elements now think it's completely fine to, as Thomas said, you know, bankrupt huge swathes of you know poorer people in 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 rich and poor countries, and poor countries really bring huge levels of hunger uh, because of the rising grain prices. You know, what has changed which make people completely lose sight of any of those facets, let alone the economic and political aspects that Thomas has already mentioned? And, and yeah, what, what, what has changed? Uh, I think years and years of corporate media propaganda just yeah. breaking down the cognitive ability the people I would have considered to be our greatest critics and the, the, the mentality that I think Thomas savagely critiqued in his opening statement of we're, we mean well, which is articulated in foreign policy circles through R2P responsibility to protect humanitarian interventionism or military humanism, which is the same as the sort of public health language that we heard during COVID. I mean, in, e in each case, it's sort of intervening in, in the public, conducting some intervention in order to, to save everyone. And it winds up actually shattering entire societies. And Toby, uh, I guess last question you've been looking at this pandemic response as close as closely as anyone I know has. Um, and you both 
warn of this politics of constant emergency, politics of crisis, and question how um, society can even itself can even be feasible under these conditions. What do you think the the next emergency could be? Will it be a pandemic? Will it, what will come after the Ukraine proxy war finally outlives its usefulness to this transnational elite? Well. The good thing about being a historian, Max, as you introduced me, is that I deal with the past. So you know, <laughs> I am, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna wager on that. I think you know what what I think what I do think about what we've observed and what I've observed in with the COVID response and we observe now is that you know what has happened is is really the manifestation of something which was already there. You know, the, this yeah. nature of the state, this nature of capital, this nature of authoritarian neoliberal. Uh, empty shell democracy you know that was all present but it wasn't manifest and it it's like an, a, an appalling disease which suddenly surfaced in a symptom you know we now have the symptom it's clear we can all observe it analyze it critique it uh i have i'm not a doctor either so i can't cure it but i think the beginning is actually i would say coming back to what thomas you said we've got to be able to have open discussions like the unheard debate you know, and, and Thomas and I have, you know, several times said to various people who crit criticized us in one way or another, you know, let's have an open discussion. You can name the venue. We'll be happy to come along. And nobody's happy to do that, probably because they know that their arguments don't hold water, you know, are, are completely yeah. useless. But anyway, we've got to be able to, you know, if, if, if open debate disappears, then there's no way of even discuss of even articulating what the symptom is, let alone curing it. Absolutely. And, and that debate was very revealing of the other side's arguments, which were just uh, reiterating boilerplate that we hear from the State Department or British Foreign Office about 2014. It just doesn't hold water against all evidence. Uh, but we're, we're open to debate at the gray zone. We just can't seem to find anyone to stand on the other side. We could easily find a venue here in Washington, D.C. Um, Thomas, any any predictions, any future emergencies? Look, I mean, there's no shortage of crises out there to be uh, to be potentially exploited. Uh, in fact, you know, now we're seeing the embrace uh, by uh, organizations like the World Economic Forum of notions such as the poly crisis. And so this notion that now, you know, we have this uh, we're, we're witnessing a, 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 a uh, a kind of a fusing together of various kinds of global crises, you know, an energy crisis, environmental crisis, climate crisis, uh, geopolitical yeah. crisis into yeah. one massive poly crisis, you know, and I think this, I'm sure that well-meaning academics that come up with these terms and, you know, think they have analytical value, uh, but it's easy to see how they could be politically exploited. You know, when you see an organization like the WEF embracing the notion of poly crisis, you can also, you know, you, you can see, uh, you know, another dynamic at play as well. You know, you can clearly see the ramping up of this notion of permanent crisis to the point that now, you know, it's not even single crises. Now it's one massive poly crisis. And it's e and that's not to say that those crises don't exist. Of course, they're real. Of course, we're facing an environmental crisis. Uh, uh, <clears throat> of course, uh, you know, I mean, that our, our reliance on fossil fuels is problematic in many respects. But it's also, you know, we have to be able to acknowledge the reality of these problems while at the same time being aware that, you know, elites will stop at nothing in the way they exploit these problems to advance their own agenda, which has nothing to do with actually solving those problems. And so, you know, if it's it's easy to see, for example, how the climate crisis, you know, could could become, you know, an umbrella crisis, you know, which is used 
to uh, push through a whole series of uh, authoritarian measures because here we're faced with, you know, uh, potentially an even bigger uh, threat than, 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 than COVID or than war. I mean, here we're dealing, right. uh, you know, with life on the planet itself, the survival of life on the planet itself, you know. And, right. and so it's easy to see how that could become kind of a blanket excuse for all sorts of policies, you know, because, of course, if we're dealing with, you know, saving life on the planet, we can't, you know, we don't have time to engage in, you know, uh, the, you know the, you know, things like, you know, deliberative democracy and debate, you know, there's no time, you know, for, for this as they keep right. repeating to us. That's Greta Thunberg's message is we do not have time to think this is an emergency, emergency. And she's obviously been put up to that. Well, you, you, again, you see how the left, I mean, I think in, in a lot of cases in, you know, in, in uh, you know, in a well-meaning manner, but they, they you know, at the very best, you know, at the very least, they indirectly clearly support, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, this authoritarian trend. You know by completely by constantly ramping up uh, the, the 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 doomerism. This you know apocalyptic yeah. Uh, yeah. narrative. Clearly, that you know indirectly lending a hand to those that have an interest in exploiting these crises uh, to uh, further their, their aims and to uh, further tighten the you know the authoritarian control over uh, over societies and so there, there is you know i mean this kind of intrinsically authoritarian tendency in a lot you know in the way the left frames a lot of the uh, a lot of these issues but there's also a really important point though is the doomerism you know i mean and thomas and i mentioned this right at the end of our book you know that uh you know that's a real shift in the left in the end of course always was an optimistic vision you know that society was going to get better that you know we were it was going to become many more people were going to be empowered uh, working people are going to be empowered in terms of choices over their lives and their and and their and their and, and their production, and that was an optimistic vision. And of course, as Thomas says, you know that has been replaced in by a real doomeristic view of, of the future. And uh, and, it, and you know, if one thing might engineer a shift, it would be you know looking at that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, very briefly. I mean, I think this is a fundamental point. You know, I mean, this doomerous narrative, this apocalyptic narrative that we've been hearing for uh, several years now. I mean, whether it's deliberate or not, I mean, it's having the effect of, uh, of I mean, it's having very, very damaging cognitive yeah. effects on people. Now we see, uh, the, you know, uh, fear of the future, worry about the future, concern about the future at, you know, highest levels ever in the West, even higher than they were, you know, during World War One or World War Two. Uh, you know, we have new new phenomena like, you know, climate anxiety emerging amongst young people, young people that are not having kids because they think the world's about to, to end. And so, I mean, in a way or not, I mean, this is no, uh, uh, I mean, clearly this is no platform on which to build anything positive. It's certainly not a platform on which you can build, you know, try to rebuild societies and rebuild uh, democracies. I mean, you're never going to be able to do that if people are... Uh, a, a sort of you know plunged into a a, a state of kind of mass depression uh yeah. fueled by the idea that you know everything's about to end you know it's kind of you know m you know millenaristic end of times uh kind of narrative that we keep hearing i think you know uh it's uh you know it's 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 it's, it's, it's no good basis on which to build any form of uh, empowering uh collective politics in fact you know uh quite quite the opposite you know it's forcing everyone into uh you know cowering in the corner you know and uh in in, in fear and so uh i think that's you know incredibly uh damaging and so you know i mean i think this narrative countering this narrative is also i think a fundamental first step in trying to uh kind of you know you know dig ourselves out of this hole in which uh in which we find ourselves <clears throat> yeah i think you know 
the left is in the West too weak to be able to dictate responses to the doom and gloom that they witness all around them. And so they fall in, you know, and I've noticed within the subculture of the radical left in which I've been immersed for many years, that there is this kind of ethos of, of sadness and that the only time people gain energy is to get hysterical over some sort of emergency, but they never have any uh, say in the response. And they wind up actually, as we saw during the pandemic, forming the, the left wing or the street wing of the, of the World Economic Forum or the transnational elite response, which in the case of climate change will be another techno fix. Uh, with COVID, it was the failed vaccination policy. With climate change, it will be renewable energy, which is a giant source of capital, the untapped trillions of dollars of capital for transnational elites and corporations. And how do they get renewable energy to function through heavy mining in places like sub-Saharan Africa with children and dirty supply chains. So it's, it, it, it's, it's not, you know, the, the, the critical thinking really critical well, thinking I mean, and, really and, and as, and as you, to the left. As you said, I can't remember, I, I think it might've been Aaron Mate, but on Grayson, you know, that, that you, you broadcast the publicized, the, the buy up by Bezos and Gates of huge amount of minerals. I think it was in Zambia. Yeah. Uh, so this is happening, you know, that's, it's already started it's happening um well this was a fascinating discussion i i think we could talk for hours more um but let's do another one in the future we've been talking with toby green and thomas fazi about their excellent fairly new book the covid consensus and you can pretty much pick it up anywhere where you're online covid consensus the global assault on democracy and the poor a critique from the left by Toby Green and Thomas Fazzi. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me here. Thank you, Max. Thank you. Pleasure. All right. Mm. Peace.